This episode is brought to you by Merrick Pet Care. And if you've heard me talk about Grammy, you know that she means the world to me. I wanted a dog for probably 10 years and I was living in an apartment, couldn't have dogs. When I finally moved somewhere else, I adopted her within weeks and it was love at first scritch. She's about two feet away from me as I record this. She hangs out in the studio and all I want to do is smooch her and look at her and stare at her. I also like feeding her because I see how happy it makes her. And there's nothing like watching her lick her chops after having yummy stuff like Grammy's pot pie or real Texas beef and sweet potato, which are two recipes she's been enjoying for America. As her parent, I like that they use deboned meat and fish or poultry as the number one ingredient. I also like that they have these real ingredients and you can see them on the bag so you know what's in each one. And watching her do a little dance, especially with a Grammy's pot pie recipe, brings too much joy to my heart. Is there such a thing as too much joy? I'm not sure. But check out Merrick online or in your local pet store and look for their new packaging with real ingredients shown on the bag and inside it. Don't just ride the index, seek to outperform it with Fidelity Active ETFs. Learn more at fidelity.com slash active ETFs. Before investing in any exchange-traded fund, you should consider its investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Contact Fidelity for a prospectus, an offering circular, or if available, a summary prospectus containing this information. Read it carefully. While active ETFs offer the potential to outperform an index, these products may more significantly trail an index as compared with passive ETFs. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC, member NYSE, SIPC. your old uncle, who's pretty dubious of that fat-free salad dressing, Allie Ward, back with another episode of Ologies. So before you think, wait, did I hear this one already? Is this just a revisiting of Lepidopterology with butterfly expert Phil Torres, who also professionally plays with baby dogs on his new CW television show, Ready, Set, Pet? Nope. It's a different episode. Different Phil Torres. It's a different Phil Torres. Boy, howdy. You know, in the 60 plus episodes that we have journeyed through together, friends, we have gone face first into death and tumors and misogyny, pet euthanasia, dabbled into crow funerals. But I gotta say this one, wow, this one's gonna have you just staring into the mirror at 1am asking, the fuck ward? Maybe more than any of them. This one is the apocalypse. Are you ready? No? Okay, I'll, I'm going to stall for one second. Before the existential upheaval, just a quick thanks to everyone supporting via patreon.com slash ologies, anyone who has put merch on your bod from ologiesmerch.com, and all the folks who for $0 rate uh, make the commitment to hit subscribe, who leave a review, which I creep with joy, and I highlight one each week. This week, you know what? I'm going to do two. One's quick shout out to Tara in Maine, who is a self-proclaimed former podcast hater and now an ologite. Come be one with us. And also, thank you for the timely as hell review from Seattle Me 227 who says, I especially love the takes on dark topics like death and fear. So refreshing. I'm an instant fan. Well, wow. Seattle Me 227, buckle up. We're talking about doomsday. So, eschatology comes from the Greek for last, meaning it's the study of the end, the end of the world. So, as this ologist explains, this term is no longer bound to just religious contexts, but also scientific study. So, he is a neuroscientist, philosophy scholar, and author of three books, including The End, What Science and Religion Tell Us About the Apocalypse, and his latest release, Morality, Foresight, and Human Flourishing an introduction to existential risks. 
As you'll hear, the apocalypse and this episode were both a long time in the making, and I coerced this ologist to drive a few hours and meet me in an airport hotel in Philly, and he was so generous with his time, he pretty much spent the evening being lobbed questions, just barraged like asteroids, one after the other. And you'll hear about his background that led him to this branch of philosophy, and where we're at on the old doomsday clock, whether or not any of us should have babies, if we should bother recycling, why voting matters, looking at you, America, and some pop-cultural antichrists, artificial intelligence, simulations, Black Mirror, technology as friend or foe, and how he's just a pretty chill guy anyway. So pack up your bug-out bag and put a down payment on a bunker while you enjoy the brilliant brain of eschatologist Phil Torres. my glasses oh, so I'm driving no. at night like it's just it's blurred you don't even need an apocalypse you're your own nightmare <laughs> oh my god here this is yours okay so let's start off number one by saying that i've been twitter stalking you for a year uh-huh. no response from you and yeah. i was like wow that phil torres guy pretty busy yeah pretty important guy yes yeah, pretty important <laughs> so many times i was like hey i'd love for you to be on the no okay yeah i, I don't know how emails I emails you also hmm. no i'm not trying to put you on blast i'm just saying that you're this is a very big get for me yeah this is of no fault of your own i was just very eagerly like hi it's me again well thank you and when i finally saw the tweet that i responded to mm-hmm. i responded to it very eagerly i was like these apocalypse people are very aloof the apocalypse <laughs> scene is like the most aloof of all of them little yeah. did I know you were eager. And also you are the second Phil Torres I've had on the podcast. Yeah. How often do you, someone who studies theories about the end of the world, get confused with someone who uh, studies butterflies and has a show about puppies? I'm more, um, I I feel kind of bad uh, for the emails that he might receive. (laughs) Because he studies butterflies and, you know, that's pretty awesome and and pretty fun and uh, there's a lightheartedness to it. (laughs) Whereas there's a a darkness and a heaviness to uh, thinking about say, uh, runaway climate change or uh, value misaligned superintelligence. So. Oh <laughs> okay, let's dive into what your ology is. It's yes. eschatology? Eschatology. Um, How do we say it? It's a good question. There's actually debate right now. Okay. Whether uh, the idea of secular apocalyptic scenarios should constitute its own uh, field, or or rather, it should, whether it should just be a topic that is discussed by people, uh, experts in their various uh, uh, you know areas of expertise. Mm-hmm. So that so, in other words, the term, the semantic of the term, have evolved over time. And at this point, like, yeah, there's a sense in which it's kind of the, the topic that I'm interested in is kind of scientific eschatology. Yeah, thinking about the the end of the world from once again like a in evidence based, you know, uh, empirical perspective. As opposed to a poof, you did, <laughs> which is would be more like being smote by Zeus or something. Yeah. Okay. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> which we in this in this way, we are our own angry God. Yeah. Kind of. Yeah. Um, I mean, there are, you know, myths uh, of, uh, you know, Greek myths of uh, humans who gain too much power and, you uh, 
you know, it didn't turn out so well. <laughs> I mean, the central concept is that of existential risk. Mm-hmm. And that is uh, cheerfully defined <laughs> as uh, any event that would either cause human extinction or result in uh, irreversible uh, decline of our potential for de- desirable future development. So in this case, the end of the planet as we know it, or the end of our species, the great Burbai. Also, this subject matter is so, so dark and surreal that I just could not stop laughing at the absurd awfulness of it. I'm so sorry. I don't know why this is so far the most hilarious episode. It's just so terrible. It's like kind of funny. I was at a conference a while back and with a bunch of people who who publish on this topic. And we had a really good time. It was a lot of fun. There was a lot of laughter and joyousness. And at some point we we sort of conjectured that um, there must be a self-selection process you know if, if you were if you were like lugubrious by disposition a certain amount p.s the word lugubrious means sad and mournful and i'm not too proud to admit that i just had to look it up then you just don't end up you know living you know in breathing uh the these issues all the time we need balance because what how can we appreciate a butterfly if we don't appreciate the fact that the butterfly could maybe just combust spontaneously into fire along with everyone that you love in fact i've sometimes mentioned you know a kind of paradox of the field which is um that i think it is among the most important topics uh, that anybody could be talking about or thinking about researching, publishing on. Well, I mean, the whole the crux of what you do is how can we appreciate our existence if we don't examine the possibility of it ending? Mm-hmm. Right? That is... Sort of? That is an implication. Yeah, so okay. so the, the, the stuff that I do in particular is mostly trying to understand the nature of the biggest global scale kind of uh, disaster scenarios facing humanity this century for the express purpose of identifying ways to mitigate those risks and make sure that they never happen. (laughs) Right. Let's go back in time to baby Phil Torres. Okay. At what point did your family realize you were more contemplative perhaps than other children? Yeah. uh, We're talking about me, not the uh, the anthropologist. Okay. Okay. Got it. So it, it's interesting. I mean, the, the my interest now, I can, there's a kind of genealogy I can trace all the way back to uh, childhood because I grew up in a pretty religious household. Oh. And. What flavor? Um, Baptist. Okay. To use a more esoteric term, the, the broader view was dispensationalist. I don't know what that means. So that means, that's when you hear about the rapture. Oh, boy. You can think d- dispensationalism. Okay. Yeah. That is the poof, I'm gone. Uh-huh. Are my clothes and shoes still here? Mm-hmm. But my body and soul is gone. That's the rapture. Yeah. Okay. If you actually look carefully at the chronology of the narrative, um, it's stunning. Like the the rapture is supposed to happen and your your soul is separated from your body. And then there's a seven year tribulation where the Antichrist gains power in the UN or EU or something like that. Ooh. And then signs of peace treaty initially beginning of tribulation with Israel. Okay. And then halfway through invades Israel. And then God rains down all of this horrible punishment. Oh. And uh, and then there's the second coming, and that's when Armageddon happens. And then there's there there and then there are various other things that continue to happen uh, so you in grew the eschaton. Up, you grew up with these yes, sort of I did. with these beliefs. 
I did. It, it uh, you know, it. I have to say, it fueled uh, some some pretty freaky dreams <laughs> for you know for an eight year old. Um, and I do actually have this vivid memory of being in the basement uh, of my house when Bill Clinton on election night when Bill Clinton won, and it was widely agreed upon in my community that he was the the Antichrist. And so I just remember being overcome with terror and you know like this is really happening and you know the i love that the antichrist plays a saxophone I know. like because they're gonna be smooth and they're gonna charm you totally it's part of the charm yeah it's with part of the yeah the the charisma and <laughs> an early 90s sax solo and everyone's like well damn Here he is. He has arrived. Is your family still pretty religious? Uh, half of it is. Okay. Yeah. Half of it is quite, quite religious. Um, and the other half isn't so much, um, along with me, is kind of drifted away from, you know, the dogmatism um, and the, the various belief commitments that half the family has. Um, but it, I, I do think it, it, it planted seeds. Uh, of interest with respect to Christian eschatology, there, there was a sense of like, well, what's what's a grander topic than um, than thinking about not just the death of individuals, right. but the species, wow. and of course, the vast majority of species that have ever lived on the planet have gone extinct. And there's something like 99.9 percent .9 of all species that have ever lived are extinct. That's correct. Yeah. So, like, uh, fate has our number. I mean, the odds are not favorable. No. And may the odds be ever in your favor. Okay, but can humans skirt extinction like perhaps some ferns and weird birds and old-timey dead salamanders and the other five billion extinct species couldn't? We are unique in that, I mean, for obvious reasons. We're, we, we have a very high encephalization quotient, you know, big brain, um, big brains, and have the capacity to... Uh, to modify our environment in various ways. Uh, you know, it's been said that the dinosaurs died out because they didn't have a space program. <laughs> and, you know, and so we maybe can use technology to actually uh, significantly reduce the probability of all sorts of catastrophes. But unfortunately, most of the risk these days comes from technology itself oh. and large-scale human activity, you know, and, uh, climate change and uh, global biodiversity loss. So yeah, technology is, is Janus-faced and, you know, kind of a double-edged sword. Mm -hmm. P.S. Who was Janus? Well, first off, Let's call him the Roman god formerly pronounced Janus by me, because I never knew it was Janus. But anyway, he's the god of beginnings and transitions, and he looks to both the past and the future at the same time. Hence, January, named after this bro. But Janus-faced means that you can have characteristics that contrast or be deceitful. So it's like the scholarly way of saying that someone is a two-faced bitch. So Phil is saying technology is a two-faced bitch. Well, what, at what point did you have to decide upon this as a major? So this is a this is a sect of theology and philosophy of sorts, correct? Not um, correct. I would not say theology. Okay. Yeah, it's. I mean, it's naturalistic. Okay. You know, so so that actually gets at a really interesting point. For most of human history, contemplations about the end of the world were deeply intertwined with religious uh, beliefs. Mm -hmm. Um. And so there was, I, I, there was a sense in which people kind of thought, 
um, took seriously sort of the long-term future of humanity, but that was within the a theological framework according to which you know we have uh, immortal souls, and you know at the the end of the world there's there's going to be a series of supernatural uh, events, and only recently ha- have humans started to think about the end from a secular, from a naturalistic perspective. The, the concept itself is really quite recent. There just isn't much. Uh, that was said about human extinction, even after the end of World War II, uh, which, of course, you know, s- coincided with the the inauguration of the atomic age. Mm-hmm. Um, there's still, I don't know, there wasn't that much thought about you know what happens if our ev- evolutionary lineage terminates, uh, maybe as a result of our own actions. But like, we just invented soap. You know what I mean? Like, we just figured out how babies were made. You know, we're such idiots. I mean, God bless us. But, like, the idea of being like, and when when shall the species be mortal? Is like, we have so much else to figure out, you know? Yeah. I mean, honestly, contraception is, like, 30 years old. It's crazy. Yeah. So we, we didn't even begin curbing the population, really, until recently. So, okay, getting back to school, though. At what point are you saying, Phil Torres? I am a philosophy major. This is my yeah. subset. Did, did you find a mentor in it? Or how do you do? How do you become one of you? <laughs> how do you do your life? If that's what you want. <laughs> yeah, exactly. For some reason. <laughs> um, well, yeah, philosophy was my main subject. And then I got a master's in neuroscience, which which is somewhat related. Yeah. There, there's, um, it's also baller. <laughs> yeah. I mean, come on. Master's in neuroscience. It, it is. It sounds way more impressive than it actually is. I'll just to be candid. <laughs> so Phil got his bachelor's in philosophy and his master's in neuroscience. And at some point, he encountered a paper by Oxford philosopher Nick Bostrom entitled Existential Risks, Analyzing Human Extinction Scenarios and Related Hazards. Now, the term existential risk means eh, the apocalypse, just doomsday, the end. And I looked up this paper just to have a little look-see, just to do a little perusing, and I'm just going to read you the first sentence. Quote, It's dangerous to be alive, and risks are everywhere. I was like, wow, man, okay, straight out of the gate. Okay, I like that. But the next sentence was a little cheerier, saying, luckily, not all risks are equally serious. So I started skimming this paper, and I came to a header just titled, Bangs. And I was like, oh, man, dude, I have cut bangs. And yes, it did feel like the end of the world. And then I realized that it was just one of four categories of big death in various levels of suddenness, like bangs, crunches, shrieks, and whimpers. So this Bostrom paper includes topics such as nuclear holocaust, asteroid impact, killed by extraterrestrial civilization, and a whole category titled, quote, we're living in a simulation and it gets shut down. So just a casual bebop down Hazard Street, which was an inspiration to Phil Torres. Because you know what? Someone's got to do these jobs, right? I think it's in his original paper, Bostrom notes that the number of papers published uh, about dung beetles uh, <laughs> in scholarly journals far exceeds the number about like human extinction or, you know. No. Yeah. So oh, it's, man. that's starting to change a little bit. Maybe this this brings us right back to the two Phil Torreses. I know. Um, so... <laughs> Speaking of like a a double-sided coin. Bridging this entomology and eschatology divide, though, one published paper titled The Role of Dung Beetles in Reducing Greenhouse Gas Emissions from Cattle Farming. So dung beetles, they're out there making the most of an objectively shitty situation 
and they're helping us survive along the way. Climate change is a phenomenon we've never encountered before, mm. at least not this type of you know anthropogenic climate change, which is very rapid. Uh, there's also global biodiversity loss, which is truly extraordinary. It's widely considered that we're in the early stage of the sixth mass extinction event right now. Oh, God. And just to give listeners a sense of how dire the uh, the situation is with respect to the, the global global ecosystems and, and the biosphere more generally, um, there was a report from 2014 called the Living Planet Report, and they found that between... I don't know why I'm chuckling, but no, they, it's just... Oh, God. I don't know what Here the other comes. options... Between 1970 and 2012, the global population of wild vertebrates declined by 58%. Oh, that's a lot. It's a huge amount. That's it's, a lot. It's deeply unsettling. I mean... You, it's not difficult to extrapolate that into the future. Right. This is happening. It's <laughs> urgent. Um, this is like the part in a party where shit starts going wrong. Like someone barfs, someone breaks the coffee table, it's getting late, the neighbors call the police, and it's just like, oh, this party is done. Yeah. Yeah. This party's done. You gotta, we got to get out of here. Have you considered writing a book just called We're All Fucked? You would move so many copies. Just have it be called We're Fucked. <laughs> I mean, yeah. that's kind of the, that's kind of the reality, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, no, I do think there's hope. Wow. Okay. Let's run down. Let's say you're at a dinner party and mm -hmm. someone's like, oh, what do you do? And you tell them and they're like, what, how's the world going to end? Give me a quick menu. If yeah. we, if we had sat down at a restaurant and we're like, here are the options for apocalypse. What are we looking at? Yeah. I would, I sort of identify three main classes Okay. phenomena. So the first class, I think, is environmental degradation. Okay. Uh, you know, if, if we, you know, Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos want to, you know, to set up colonies on Mars, mm. which is, I think, <laughs> misguided. Uh, yeah. <laughs> um, and all that money would be a lot better spent uh, trying to ensure that this uh, spaceship that we're on it remains habitable. So yeah, there, there are all sorts of statistics that could be mentioned here that are ex very unsettling okay, <laughs> and very worrisome. Give me some. By the way, I'm with you on the, wait, why are we going to go to Mars when we have a planet that we're not done ruining yet? Yeah. I, w like, we, ha we have a whole planet here. We could just not mess this up. Yeah. So give me some unsettling statistics. I'm ready for them. I'm also very skeptical of space colonization, just generally. Uh, uh, and there's a really fantastic book that's forthcoming by a guy named da uh, Daniel Dudney, who's a uh, political scientist at Johns Hopkins. Uh, called Dark Skies, which offers a really detailed case for why venturing uh, into the solar system and then into the galaxy uh, could actually have quite ruinous consequences. The evolutionary trajectories that we will likely uh, follow is in all sorts of technologies that could we could use to alter our, our phenotypes. You gotta but, just splice us together with a tardigrade. You know what I mean? Yeah. Half human, half tardigrade. My head on a tardigrade body, but the size of a dog. Yeah. I mean, that's what we're looking at. Withstand dehydration for 10 years. It'd be great. Can you imagine? I'm gonna Photoshop that. So, awesome. I'm sorry to veer off on, in, no, in that this. direction, but space colonization, is, I mean, that's another issue that is, you know, right now. I mean, it could be in the next 10 years that we have some colonies on Mars. So like, yeah, I, th I think it's it, it's a timely issue. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. So getting back to the, the main <laughs> potential causes of uh, our annihilation. Yeah. Um, 
sucks. I love it. <laughs> sucks so bad. We're all going to die. Okay. So we got environmental degradation. Yeah. This is exactly the moment when we need environmental wisdom. Oh. You know? And uh, and we, we clearly don't have it. So the other issue, I think, it has to do with uh, emerging technologies that are dual use in nature can be used for both uh, harmful or beneficial ends. There are various domains of technology right now that are developing extremely rapidly mm -hmm. uh, at exponential pace or like super exponential pace. And they hold immense promises to cure disease, to reverse aging, to maybe even restore the environment in some way. Uh, I mean, de-extinction is like a new thing. You know, like, I didn't know that was even a word. That's a word. Yep. It's very optimistic. Yeah. The, um, George Church at, at uh, Harvard is right now working on a project to bring back the woolly mammoth and, and some other species. So. Is that a good idea? Your scientists were so preoccupied with whether or not they could, they didn't stop to think if they should. I don't know. Okay. Maybe not. Yeah. But I think, there's a, I think there's a very good conversation to be had about that. The conversation's being... Is it ethical to edit Asian elephant genes and add in woolly mammoth traits? And does this lead the way to careless extinctions? Because now we know we have these genetic backups on ice. And also, was Mr. Snuffleupagus the once selectively seen and then fully acknowledged mammoth-like puppet of Sesame Street? Was he an agent of existential foreshadowing in this life simulation we call Earth? Also, is technology evil? Technology could enable us to do all sorts of... Uh I think genuinely marvelous things, but also these same technologies could enable us to synthesize designer pathogens that, uh, you know, are really unnaturally dangerous. They could have long incubation periods, so you don't, you know, they could spread around the, the globe without uh, uh, people e exhibiting symptoms, super lethal. And making matters worse, it's not only the case that the technology is becoming more powerful, but it's becoming much more accessible too. So it's not just that like a large group of scientists like the Manhattan, you know, Manhattan Project size group of, of uh, experts are able to create a pathogen that is, you know, exceptionally uh, lethal, but, you know, small groups, small terrorist groups, uh, maybe even single individuals. So you could DIY CRISPR the plague. Yeah, don't say it so loudly, though. No, never mind. Don't do that. Also, I hope our phones are eavesdropping. It is a fact in researching books and papers that I, ha I have an internet history. Oh, know, I bet you're on so <laughs> many watch lists. Of looking up oh my some God. really, really frightening uh, pathogens. I mean, I Google a lot about like whale dicks and stuff for this <laughs> podcast, but your search history is way is going to be way more suspicious than mine. Yeah, yeah so, no doubt. So we're looking at... at Essentially, we're we're screwing up the planet itself, and, mm -hmm. and a lot of species are going extinct. Mm -hmm. uh, technology is moving so fast; it can be used probably more for bad than for good, or at least they could outpace one could outpace the other. As some as uh, two philosophers, uh, Julian Savulescu and, and uh, Ingmar uh, Person, uh, who've written a bunch of papers together, have pointed out, it tends to be a fact that uh, it's just easier to do harm than to do good. You know what? Settle in right now. Get cozy for something that will haunt the rest of your waking hours. Oh, you know, it's easier God. to it's easier to to harm a hundred people than to you know benefit them to the same degree. So I think technology is just kind of a big magnifying glass and is just uh, 
you know, it, it isn't it isn't genuinely like a qualitatively new uh, situation when like a single individual has the has the power to wreak, you know, civilizational havoc. These technologies are seem to be empowering individuals much more than the state. You know, there's a book uh, that, about this exact issue called The Future of Violence, and they talk about the they conjecture that there may be an impending dissolution of the social contract. And with it, a, a kind of return to Hobbesian anarchy, where there's just no secure, you know, the state is no longer able to provide security because single individuals can harm huge numbers of people in ways that are really difficult to detect and also are difficult to prevent. P.S. Thomas Hobbes was a philosopher from the 1600s, and he held the core belief that human beings are just selfish creatures. That's the idea behind the the at least the Hobbesian version of social contract. Is this the is this also the logic behind doomsday bunkers where you just like you get a bunch of dehydrated potatoes and you just like hit at the underground? Pretty much, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, you're just like a piece. You all fight it out up there. Yeah, I'm I, gonna live in this bunker. I haven't gotten to that point yet myself. Okay, but I I I. I I, I have been tempted at times just to stash a couple extra bottles of wine or something, um, you know, just just in case. Some swords, maybe. Yeah. So this is like if you have one million pretty chill people, you just need one who will off the other million. Is yeah. that kind of what we're talking about? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Or you you could um, look at it from a different perspective and say, imagine you have out of a population of 7.6 billion, you've got one million uh uh, malicious agents who have omnicidal tendencies and would actually like to to destroy humanity if they could. Uh, this is, by the way, a topic I've also written about, and there are those people out there oh, for no. sure. I've yeah. never heard the word omnicidal, but like, yeah, it's a it's a lovely term. They're like, this is my personal brand. Yeah. I'm really into omnicide. It's a fun fact. Omnicidal means kill everything and everyone until the extinction of our species. It's very OTT, very over the top, very extra very diva, very drama, needs to just not. So you can imagine like one million uh, genuinely malicious agents and say, and then ask like, what is the probability that any one of them will gain access to the relevant technology, which increasingly uh, that's possible, you know, it's to set up a biohacker uh, lab, you know, you only need a few hundred bucks. Oh, pardon my despair grunting. John Soto's even, um, even hypothesizes that the this distribution of of unprecedented destructive capabilities could constitute the great a great filter that explains uh, you know some probability bottleneck that all civilizations have to go through and almost none of them make it out. Well, that's why we don't observe aliens wandering through the universe. Uh, the universe seems to be uh, uh, vacant in terms of with respect to life. So they Why all, is that? They all have like teenage gamers trying to kill each other and they're on their own planet and they're like, beep, bork, bork, dork, and then they all die also. Oh, God. Yes, you, you really sh should have co-authored because that would have been a nice flare at some point. Just alien incels with 12 dicks being like, I can't even get laid at all. I'm going to kill everyone. Holy smokes. Okay, yeah. so, okay, so the, the last one, uh, sorry for uh, delaying. I have too many questions. I'm so sorry. Yeah, no, no, no. It's fine. The, the last one um, I mentioned before that is a bit more speculative, uh, but I, I would say it's machine superintelligence. Oh, boy. We're talking AIs. 
AI. Okay. Oh, yeah. We got some artificial intelligence that's going to kill us all. <laughs> yeah, so, so one of the biggest myths is that the AI system that is dangerous is is one that has some kind of malicious, uh, malevolent, uh, malign intentions. And while it's possible that a super intelligent machine uh, could be designed in such a way or could for some some reason acquire uh, like, you know, a kind of must kill humans uh, value system. I love, by the way, that if there is a malicious AI, it can kill us all, but it can't make a complete sentence. Do you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> yeah. it can't say, great to make your acquaintance. I must kill all of the humans in existence. It can only use an economy of words that's like, yeah, very simple, but it's very sophisticated in that it could kill us all. Yeah. Can't just can't can't learn can't learn the language. So must kill humans. Yeah, yeah, and the voice too. Of uh, course, the, the better synthesized voices by the, yeah. by the time. Um, so the, actually, the real danger is that it exceeds us. Uh, it exceeds the best possible that uh, any member of our species could possibly achieve. And also that its its value system is not sufficiently well aligned with ours. Uh, it's it, it makes for a much less compelling uh, movie, you know, storyline. But this is actually the real substantive concern that people have. You know, computers tend to process information way faster than humans, a million plus times as fast. Basically, the outside world to it looks frozen. Mm. Um, and that's not even without, that's even without quantum computing. Yeah. 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 I'm just is, talking. Yeah. You're just talking about what we got, which compared to quantum computing is so slow. Yeah. Oh boy. Quantum computing, by the by, relies on an atom's superposition of being essentially two things at once instead of our current computers, which rely on transistors to make bits that represent ones and zeros. Anyway, that's as nutshell as it gets and probably a little bit wrong. But how much faster is quantum computing? Some say... 100 million times faster than your laptop. It's a lot. And so I, I like ran the numbers. I think the average PhD program in the US is like something like 8.2 years. And that equate, you know, if, if computers process information a million times faster, that means that, you know, a super intelligent machine or just, just a generally artificially general, artificial general intelligence uh, could earn. A PhD in something like four point three minutes oh, or something. No. So, <laughs> so much cheaper. Yeah. So, so that's on the one hand. Uh, second, um, there's something called the instrumental convergence thesis, mm -hmm. and this is just the idea that uh, for a wide range of final goals, there are some very predictable intermediary goals okay. that the system is going to uh, pursue. So essentially, if you have goals, there are some basic things that you have to do to achieve them. Like if you wanted to be a musician, Phil says, you would have to get good at, say, shredding on guitar. You would have to obtain the guitar. And if your stepdad tried to kill your dreams, you would resist him and tell him, fuck you, Doug. No one likes your coleslaw or your mustache. And then you'd keep practicing those hot licks. Same with AI. It's going to, first of all, it might look around and think, uh, you know, these humans, they could turn, could try to, to shut me down. Mm -hmm. So it's maybe in my interest to uh, eliminate them. I know that you and Frank were planning to disconnect me. 
And I'm afraid that's something I cannot allow to happen. Another thing is, you know, humans are made out of conveniently located atoms. Oh. Uh, so it's, it's as one um, researcher famously put it, uh, Eliezer Yudkowsky, uh, you know, it's, it's not, to paraphrase him, it's not that the AI hates you or loves you. It just notices that you're made out of material that it can use for something else. So kind of the, the analogy here, um, this is another kind of, uh, it's becoming a uh, cliche a bit, is, you know, when humans go, um, you know, raise a forest to build a, a suburban neighborhood, uh, you know, the, the result is sometimes like a, you know, pretty devastating ant genocide. Mm. And, um, and it's not that... The, it's not that we have any ill will toward. It's not like the, it's not that we're malevolent towards the ants. It's simply that we're much smarter, and therefore can manipulate the world in ways that uh, the ants can't even conceive. Um, and also, we just have different values. Our value systems are not properly aligned. So, if you think about this analogy, you know, with us as the ants going about our business, we have our own values. We want to build these little colonies underground, and then the super intelligent system that we create ends up having values that don't perfectly align with our colony building <laughs> values. Then, you know, it may just raise the forest and in pursuit of its own, you know, particular aims, uh, with the with the consequence being that uh, we all perish. And the next thing you know, we fucked. <laughs> yeah. anyway, once again, come to the conclusion, end of the flowchart, we're fucked. <laughs> yeah, that reminds me a lot of, there was a, um, I think I, I'm probably going to forget the guy's name, but there was a geophysicist, oh, Brad Werner, I think is his name. He presented, uh, gave a presentation that was titled, uh, Is Earth Fucked? <laughs> and... He got a lot. he got a fair amount of press for it, and as he explained to someone, I think from like Gizmodo or something, um, that he his answer is more or less yeah yeah <laughs> like, it's just a shrug a, yeah so a single slide yep you're like wow that was a 45 second presentation he's done he's like and there's croissants in the lobby so <laughs> bye bye now yeah how do you think the world is going to end if you had to put your money on it. Not that money matters when the apocalypse is nigh, but if someone's like, Mr. Taurus, yeah. put your money on the end. What yeah. is it? Um, I think it would be imprudent to specify one particular scenario. You're like all of them. I have yet to discover a particularly good counter argument to the issue that we were talking about before. So in regard to the democratization of destructive technology, that little thing. If there is a technology, you know, as some people have said, if, if everybody around the world had uh, an app on their phone that where they could open it up and push a button that would destroy the world, who thinks the world would last for more than two seconds? Oh, it would be over. <laughs> there would be someone who got rejected for a prom date. Oh, we'd be smoked. <laughs> yeah, it's... It's implausible to think we would last for a minute. And it would, I'm sorry, but it would 1 million percent be a dude between the ages of like 16 and 23 that did it. Like 100 percent. Someone's prom date, someone's girlfriend left them for someone who does more CrossFit and then the world is over. That's how it would end. No offense. This is another topic that has been discussed. Uh, among uh, the relevant scholars. Basically, the argument is that, you know, a um, a, a milieu in which there are extremely powerful technologies, and then there are there's this segment of 
of humanity that is suffering from testosterone poisoning and uh you know I, that's a, I, i've written about this as well i i'm very worried about it um yeah it's <laughs> what can we do for the what can we do for the dudes like if the dude were uh, a stray animal let's mm-hmm. say a wounded raccoon yeah. or a neglected rabid dog what could we do to help fix them so they don't kill us in the face i you know i don't have a good answer um i mentioned before the philosophers uh, julian savalescu and ingmar person who wrote a uh, really interesting book uh from 2012 called unfit for the future where they talked about the they they go into immense detail about the possibility of using moral bioenhancements. Moral bioenhancements. These are a thing. I feel like coffee is already kind of one of them. Th- these would be biomedical interventions that would aim to enhance our our empathy, uh, s- sympathetic concern, and it's really controversial. It's person engineering uh, type stuff. But they so they argue on the one hand that if we remain as we are moving into the future uh we're the outcome's going to be bad so so we're fucked we're fucked yeah um so that is what that is what uh warrants uh i believe they would would say they're considering a possibility that's really quite radical anyways the point is that you know statistically speaking uh women tend to do better than men with respect to empathy and sympathy and and you know moral uh, uh characteristics like that so they have this really great line uh where they say you know what may need to happen is that we make uh men more like women or rather men more like men who are like women there are definitely people in this field who take seriously the uh potentially quite combustible mixture of you know just toxic masculinity and dual use technologies. Oh, <laughs> so, oh, that's such a that's like a that's like a toddler with a machine gun kind of. I don't know what to say. Maybe maybe put the men on Mars or something. <laughs> you can just sequester them over there and then oxytocin supplements maybe oxytocin is one of the main uh uh possibilities that uh Savulescu and and person uh discuss. Uh, but unfortunately, oxytocin the 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 effects are limited to racial in groups, according okay. to a whole bunch of studies. So you do get more empathetic to other humans, but it doesn't go beyond your, your race, at least in the, in the oh, studies. Jeez, that's so, the hugest problem we have, pretty yeah, much. Yeah. So they do mention at some point that this is, uh, let's say, not a trivial right. <laughs> problem with. Oh, you know, because I mean, we have fluoride in the in the public drinking water, right. you know, for a uh, healthier dentition. And we vaccinate, vaccinate, and know? and yeah. So there's a kind of perspective where I don't know. Maybe it's not totally crazy that you'd put some oxytocin in the you know in the public drinking water. The Mountain but, Dew, just put it in the Monster Energy, because I feel like those are the people who need it. <laughs> <laughs> I really like the more targeted approach. That's much more clever. How often do you think about the apocalypse? Is it only when you're working, or is it when you're driving around? When a new Mariah Carey single drops? When you are? Is there a new single? I don't know. Okay. (laughs) A 
girl can dream. <laughs> I'm trying to think of the good things in life. As fate and I guess the subconscious effect that a good publicist would have, Mariah Carey does have a new album coming out. It drops November 16th, people, and fittingly for this episode, it's titled Caution. Also, does Phil ever get bummed? But, like, do you think about it on a daily basis? Like, maybe I shouldn't sweat this because we're about to annihilate the planet. Um, so, if you take seriously some of the probability estimates that uh, scholars have proposed, Bostrom has has um, a few Toby Ord's you know, has suggested that we maybe have a one in six chance of surviving the century. One in six chance of surviving the next 82 years. Yeah. Are you going to have kids? Do you have kids? No. Okay. Are you going to have kids? No. Do you think, or is that because you're like, we're all going to die anyway? Because um, I've, I've often thought that. I'm like, yeah. number one, there's too many of us. We're growing exponentially. No one needs more of me. Yeah. One of me is plenty. And also, Yeah, one of me is... Enough for the world. <laughs> and then they're just going to die. But how do, you, what do you, how do you approach those kind of life decisions? There's a philosophical component and then like a kind of empirical uh, component. Uh, empirically, I think I could imagine a version of the world that is uh, worth living in. You know, we're like, you people take science seriously. Uh, you know, it could be the case that climate change is, is right now not a concern at all because people listened to scientists back in the 90s etc and then took actions just like we did with the with the ozone hole yeah there's a sense in which the world could be significantly more livable than uh it is unfortunately we're in a world you know where uh i mean i don't i can only assume what your personal politics are but you know donald trump is is <laughs> Uh, got elected even after the the Trump tape and uh, you know etc. I mean that's an unfortunate world. Uh, to put it crudely, it's a shitty world. Mm -hmm. um, so I'm disappointed. And maybe another way to put this is I, I have I'm deeply disappointed in my species for not doing better. And but so then there's a philosophical issue, and this gets to uh, um, an idea referred to as antinatalism. Oh, okay. Oh, there's a word for it. Yeah. Oh, I thought it was just spinsterism. It was just old, weird aunt with no kidsism. I didn't know there was an antinatalism. Yeah, so it's a it's a pretty fascinating view. Uh, it's it's um like Arthur Schopenhauer is kind of famously an antinatalist uh, who believe and his argument was that life is just terrible. You know, life is dukkha. So dukkha translates from the Sanskrit and it means suffering, pain or stress. So life is dukkha is a Buddhist phrase that means that life is kind of unsatisfactory and painful. Life just kind of sucks. Now, in all transparency, when Phil said life is dukkha, I thought he meant dookie, which is a casual term for poo. But he also said that some argue that the most compassionate thing you can do is not bring a child into the world because it's hard. It's just hard to live. It's hard to be a person. But a lot of this probably depends on your own outlook on life and how much you enjoy it. I do not enjoy most Italian food to a lot of people's shock and disgust of me. But ergo, I would never bring someone to Buco de Beppo as a treat. However, some people love it. They would definitely invite others to a spaghetti fest. Now, from an evolutionary standpoint, some scientists think it's better for a species not to fully grasp the pain of existence. 
Thomas Metzinger, another philosopher, has talked about how, you know, evolutionarily speaking, we probably would not have been selected. Uh, you know, uh, tendencies to to recognize the extent of harm in our our life; those tendencies would be selected against because that's not really good for, right? You know, for getting it on, right? You know? You're like, this is terrible. Let's make more of us. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So he says it's always a harm to bring a human into the world because because. Yeah, because you're all that humans. Sure, they're going to have some good experiences. But they're also going to have bad experiences. Whereas a person who doesn't exist isn't going to miss those good experiences. But is you know, it is good that that individual is not uh, uh, experiencing the bad stuff. If you had a time frame that you thought the apocalypse maybe were to visit us, yeah. kind of like a doom fairy. When do you think that might happen? I'm just trying to figure out, like, do I buy the extra protection plan with the electronics? How much do I invest in my retirement? This is a general issue that uh, we've returned to several times. I'm so sorry. No, no, it's fine. I just don't have a good uh, a good sense. Objectively, I mean, you can, you know, uh, we know that, you know, a huge asteroid that could kill our species strikes Earth every, you know, 400 million years or something, um, or 400,000 years, maybe. A super, volcanic, a super volcano erupts every 50,000 or so. Uh, the last one, well, two super volcanic eruptions ago was the Toba catastrophe that might have resulted in a population bottleneck of maybe a thousand humans. Uh, so we almost went extinct. Oh, way so back when. close! Those one with those one thousand must have been so horny. Yeah. Oh, they must have been like you guys. We got work to do. <laughs> so I mean, we could have a we could have Yellowstone could just pop off, and then there could be twelve of us left. That is a frightening possibility. Yeah. Yeah. So the Toba catastrophe theory, just looked it up, it holds that 75,000 years ago in Indonesia, there was a volcano so wicked that it led to a volcanic winter that lasted six to ten years and maybe a thousand-year-long cooling episode for the Earth, and we all almost died. Now, for more on volcano doom, if you're like, wow, didn't know I was so horny for volcano facts, see episode one with Jess Phoenix, you will lava it. Bostrom puts the probability at at least 20% uh, based on objective and subjective considerations. uh, That is before uh, 2100. Uh, Martin Rees suggests that there's a 50-50 chance of civilizational collapse uh, this century. Um, If if you take seriously some of these estimates and you compare them to the likelihood of dying, for example, in a car accident Mm -hmm. or a plane accident or something of that sort... um, it turns out you're much more likely to encounter some kind of human extinction event than really like thousands of times more likely. Wow. I should I should add quickly, you're also much more likely to die in like a huge asteroid strike. Uh, then uh, gets struck by lightning or something. And that's just because uh, an asteroid strike is going to harm so many people mm-hmm. um, that if you if you consider the uh, probability over, you know, millennia, then that's how you get the probability that uh, you're more likely to die that way. Oh, but it's yeah. still numbers are numbers. I'll take <laughs> yeah, it. Yeah. <laughs> do you live your life differently thinking about the apocalypse or do you give advice to anyone like, we should still be recycling, right? We should, yeah. Okay. Yeah. We should still be helping fellow humans. Oh, very much so. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Trying not to squash any endangered species. Mm -hmm. Vote for people who give at least one shit about the future. (laughs) 
right? Yeah. And don't develop AI that could use human atoms as fuel. Mm -hmm. Have you ever watched Black Mirror? Yes. How do you feel about it? Very good. Good? Yeah. Why? I mean... Uh, Sorry, I'm screaming. <laughs> let me... Let me... Let me change my answer a bit. I think the show is fantastic. Okay. I think a lot of the topics uh, that they that the show explores are really fascinating, and it's a lot of the, the, these issues are kind of right around the corner. So it's it's uh, I mean it's giving us a, a sneak peek in certain respects at least uh, of kind of near term you know issues with social media with uh you know possibly things like mind uploading i mean that might be you know in the next you know several decades um yeah it's really quite good and it, it it's i think it's helpful to explore the more dystopian uh possibilities because again uh, you know these t technologies are dual use they they don't just have dest destructive capabilities but also on the other hand um they could really ameliorate the human condition in all sorts of amazing ways i certainly would be elated if we could cure all disease <laughs> you know to be dope as hell and uh cancer alzheimers and but the you know, and focusing on the peril, I think, doesn't make one uh, a pessimist. Uh, this is an issue that I've I've had with a lot of Steven Pinker's work, uh, because he seems to think that people who talk about existential risks are are pessimistic. Like, you know, I tend to be fairly optimistic uh, in my personal life by my nature, uh, but there are some facts about the world that make me pessimistic. Mm -hmm. Anyways, the point is in order to increase the chance that there is actually a really good outcome, it's critical to to focus on the worst case scenarios on how things could go wrong, where you say, okay, let's let's fix this outcome. In fact, Pinker has uh, accused some existential risk scholars of, uh, of just kind of sitting around trying to invent new doomsday scenarios. Well... Kind of, yes, because sure. because we certainly don't want to be blindsided. We got these big old noggins. We got to use them. You think ahead. I like to rely on the theory that this is all a simulation. Um, possibilities that that's true. It's possible. Okay. Like, can you just say that it's possible? If if it were a simulation, if someone were like, "Hey, got news," say, would you do anything differently in your life? Probably not. But some scholars, he says, like Max Tegmark, have simulation theories, maybe a little tongue-in-cheek, that maybe the more strife and jerks in power and religious wars we have, the more entertaining we are to the folks running the simulation. Kind of like an ant farm with a lot of battles and activities, only we're people, and it feels real, and it hurts, and we want to sleep all the time to escape the pain. Can I ask you some Patreon questions if I make it quick? Yeah. I'm going to lob a couple questions at you at random. Okay. okay so on Patreon, Patreon patrons mm -hmm. get to submit questions. And I'm just going to ask you a few at total random. A lot of people always like, how are we going out? Um, that's like everyone's. Um, would it be self-induced or extraterrestrial? Everyone's like, how are we going out? Everyone wants to know. But before we take 
questions from you, our beloved listeners. We're going to take a quick break for sponsors of the show. Sponsors? Why sponsors? You know what they do? They help us give money to different charities every week. So if you want to know where Ologies gives our money, you can go to alleyward.com and look for the tab Ologies Gives Back. There's like 150 different charities that we've given to already with more every single week. So if you need a place to go donate a little bit of money, but you're not sure where to go, those are all picked by Ologists who work in those fields and And this ad break allows us to give a ton of money to them. So thanks for listening and thanks sponsors. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Listen, we're all carrying around just a backpack of stressors and sadnesses. When we keep them all zipped up and the load gets heavier, it can start to affect us negatively. You start to feel misunderstood, sad, resentful. A safe place to unpack that is, you guessed it, therapy. Therapists can help you dump out your bag and work through the heavy garbage that's weighing you down, in my case at least. I've used BetterHelp. They have definitely helped me understand that pushing my feelings down does not actually make them go away. It makes them feel worse. So if you've been thinking about starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient and flexible. It's suited to your schedule. You fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist. It's so much faster and easier than trying to hunt down a therapist from just online listings and cold calling. That's one thing I love about BetterHelp. And if for any reason you are not vibing with your therapist, you can switch anytime, no additional charge, no drama. So unburden yourself and trauma dump onto someone who's trained for this. So get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash ologies today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P.com slash ologies. Oh, Kiwiko. We love you. Kids love you. Parents love you. Uncle Allie's love you. Here's the deal. So whether you're staying at home or you're heading out on some summer explorations, KiwiCo is inviting kids, also kids at heart, that's you, to enjoy their first ever summer adventure series. So kids from two years old to teens can receive six hands-on science and art project kits over six weeks. They have something for everyone. They have different topics for each age, whether your kid wants to explore space or learn about dinosaurs. And I've heard from my parental friends that summer can be a little challenging to keep the kids busy. Kiwi goes like, we did the legwork for you. And the Summer Adventure Series is this personalized experience with super fun activities like a bottle rocket kit where kids can build an actual bottle rocket. And you can either receive all of your summer adventure crates at once or weekly for six weeks. I think it's so amazing that they have different crates for different ages. Everything from the great outdoors that has like giant bubbles or a window garden to a trebuchet kit for ages 9 to 14. An entrepreneur where you can do textured clay projects. If you have kids, if you know kids, keep them occupied and learning and having fun this summer with KiwiCo. And you can get 20% off your summer adventure series at kiwico.com slash ologies summer. That's 20% off your summer adventure at kiwico.com slash ologies summer. Oh, have fun. Oh, it's heating up. It's time to say bye now to your jackets and your sweaters and your tights and get reacquainted with shorts and tees, breezy things. Can I point you to the direction of Quince? What I love about Quince, you can build a lineup of timeless pieces. They keep you looking effortlessly chic year after year without spending a fortune. They have premium European linen dresses, blouses, and shorts. They start at $30. They have washable silk tops. And I love that all Quince items are priced 50 to 80% 
less than similar brands because they partner directly with top factories. They cut out the cost of the middleman and then they pass the savings on to you. So whether you need a sundress you can wear to a picnic or you need some good t-shirts or tanks that feel nice on your skin and are well-made, head over to Quince. I love them so much I put them on my body. That's what clothes are for. Get warm weather ready with Quince. Go to quince.com slash ologies for free shipping on your order and 365 day returns. That's Q-U-I-N-C-E dot com slash ologies to get free shipping and 365 day returns. Q-U-I-N-C-E dot com slash ologies. Oh, hi, it's me, the lady that checks a bunch of scholarly articles before she believes anything, Allie Ward. And I feel like we are similar in that we have a fair amount of skepticism and we like to dive deep and find out what the actual facts are. This is why when it comes to any kind of supplements, I enjoy Ritual, which is a female-founded B Corp, meaning that they're holding themselves accountable to not just the company, but also to the health of people in our planet. And they're clinically backed essential for women at 18 plus multivitamin has these high quality, traceable key ingredients in bioavailable forms that are clean. Only about 1% of supplement brands are USP verified and Ritual is one of them. So I like being able to trust what I'm putting in my body. From an aesthetic standpoint, I'll also tell you that Ritual are beautiful little vitamins. They look like lava lamps and they taste like mint. So taking my Ritual is part of my, I guess, morning ritual. I, that's probably why they named it that and I didn't even think about it. Anyway, no more shady business. Ritual's Essential for Women 18 Plus is a multivitamin you can actually trust. So get 25% off your first month at ritual.com slash ologies. You can start Ritual or add Essential for Women 18 Plus to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash ologies for 25% off. Down the hatch. Okay your questions. Kira Lichtenfeld asked, do you put any stock into the doomsday clock? She also notes that was an accidental rhyme. And P.S. The doomsday clock is a symbol that the Bulletin of Atomic Scientists first employed in 1947. It represents how close we are to a man-made global catastrophe. Now, should I change man-made to person-made or should I just leave it man-made? I'm gonna leave it. Also, how close we are to climate change or a global nuclear war. Now, doomsday is represented by midnight, and in 1947, it was set to seven minutes to the hour. Now, it's been set backwards and forwards 23 times since then, and it reached a placid 17 minutes to the hour in 1991, but um, it has changed recently. That he, Donald Trump, I, I'm sure you, you know this, or listeners know this, but he uh, more or less single-handedly pushed the doomsday clock, the minute hand of the doomsday clock forward. Oh, God. Um, that happened in 2017. They announced uh, most January or something. And then uh, that was the, the clock went from three minutes before midnight, which represents doom, mm-hmm. uh, to two and a half minutes. And then last earlier this year, I should say, uh, it was pushed forward another 30 seconds. Oh, dear. Almost entirely because of... Uh, of Trump's actions and, you know, climate denialism uh, and, and background, you know, um, also like withdrawing from the Paris Climate Agreement and the Iran nuclear deal, oh my both God. of which the, the Bulletin of the Atomic Scientists, which runs the doomsday clock, uh, identified previously as, as they put it, two bright spots in front of a canopy of uh, bleakness, or they had some kind of something somewhat dark and uh, dismal, dismally poetic, uh, and yeah. So Donald, there is, We're you know, just inching at, closer at exactly the moment in human history. You know, we've been around for two hundred thousand years, and and 
recorded history started maybe 4,000 years ago, uh, 6,000 years ago, I guess. And as Stephen Hawking said bef- in a uh, Guardian op-ed in 2016, I think, um, it's, there's very good reason for thinking this is the most dangerous moment in all of human history. So it, at this critical juncture oh. in our career as a species, exactly the moment when we need someone who is deeply sagacious and wise and thoughtful and oh. understands our evolving existential predicament, uh, we have someone who is, I mean, I, I know I'm not, this isn't a bold original <laughs> thesis that I'm <laughs> proposing here, but someone who is just profoundly ignorant and just revels in ignorance and foolishness uh, and myopia. Aaron Estbrooks wants to know, are we better off heading for water or going underground? She's are those the only two options? I don't know. I think she's assuming that we want to survive. <laughs> yeah. Just dark. Well, uh, yeah, some sco- scholars have advocated for uh, bunkers that are continually occupied. If you're cruising Redfin for an apocalypse pied de terre, there's a former missile silo near Topeka for sale. Just over $3 million, 34 acres, solar panels, comes with a lawnmower, and 11,000 square feet of hunker-down fun time space below the earth. Perhaps you can invite Michael Stipe for a slumber party. So that's one option. Water, I don't know. I mean, actually, submarines could uh, could serve the exact same purpose as bunkers. Oh, you know, there, there could be some global catastrophe. Uh, this is some uh, scenarios. It actually wouldn't be effective, of course, like a runaway greenhouse effect, or you know, there could be a physics disaster that results in a black hole or strange lit or uh, or a vacuum bubble, as it's called, that could actually destroy the entire universe. Oh dear. That seems unlikely, but uh, but also possible. I mean, maybe... I mean, Mars sounds as appealing as underground or underwater <laughs> to me. And Mars doesn't sound too appealing. It does not sound very appealing. It seems very dry there. Jessica Vitarelli wants to know, why are humans so obsessed with being judged at the end of their life? Is it something learned or just part of our makeup? Ooh, that's a good question. Mm-hmm. Surely some of it is learned. I mean, this is outside my area of expertise, so I'm, I would just, you know, I'm just guessing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no doubt some of it's learned, but also, I, I don't know, my immediate thought is like, maybe there's a component of morality that leads us to wish that when we're gone, you know, th- that during our lives, we would have uh, had a positive impact and left some kind of some kind of trace that, uh, you know, benefited the world or just the people around us, you know. That's a kind, nice answer. It's the best I could do. No, it's, you managed it. Shelby Fawn wants to know, how has studying neuroscience informed your philosophical work? And what is your favorite weird end of the world potentiality? So neuroscience and philosophy. Yeah. And then uh, what's yeah. the best way to go out? Yeah. So the reason I was interested in neuroscience to begin with was because I was uh, focusing as an undergrad on philosophy of mind. And this was kind of shortly after Patricia Churchland uh, published her book on neurophilosophy. And she holds a view about folk psychology, beliefs, desires. Okay, so this is a philosophy in a very, very tiny, tiny thumbnail nutshell asserts that things we think we understand up in the mind, like that we believe in things or desire things, 
not really real because they're poorly defined and the behavior should just be judged on biological levels. So I was I was pretty intrigued by that and I thought maybe it would be worth learning a bit more about the hardware, you know, and seeing how that might inf- inform uh, philosophizing about the wetware, you know, the higher level of conscious experience or, uh, or, or you know, just cognitive functions. And then yeah. what's your favorite uh, apocalypse scenario? Okay, so there's this amazing polymathic scholar at Oxford University named Andrew Sandberg. And he recently res- responded to a Quora question, which was, what would happen if the Earth suddenly turned into uh, high-density blueberries? Uh-huh. And he took he took the question seriously and did the math and ended up responding with a paper that is up on archive. And it's it's a really technical, uh, really technical, fantastic, sophisticated uh, article um, that, I you know, I, I couldn't get through <laughs> parts of it, but it was really quite entertaining. And so I think that's my most favorite, fantastical uh, eschatological scenario. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm ready for the blueberry death. You're blowing up like a balloon. Like a blueberry. Yeah. I'm so ready for it. Lindsay Frischmuth uh, wants to know, number one, are you familiar with Harry Potter? Not really. Okay. She wanted to know if you're Slytherin, but something told her that you're a Ravenclaw. There are different <laughs> houses. Maybe you could go take that. Who knows? But my last two questions. Yeah. Worst thing about your job. What sucks about studying the apocalypse? I don't that's such a that's that could be either that's such a broad question. But yeah. what is the worst thing about studying the apocalypse? Yeah. Um Well, it's not the most soporific topic, that's for sure. Okay. Soporific just means inducing drowsiness. So no. The end of the world, not a sleepy business. Also, yes, I looked it up. I, I do enjoy I mean it's it's meaningful uh work for sure. I think that's what um kind of uh, enables me to uh, spend days, you know, <laughs> to, to just, you know, just really cogitating some particular, uh, you know, dark scenario. Cogitate, to think about or meditate upon. Toss that in your little word toolbox. It's a good one. I don't know in terms of downsides. I mean, it's hard to get grants, you know, it's, <laughs> it, it's, a, that's a bit of a struggle. I think that's the worst part. Getting grants? Yeah, getting grants. I love that you study heat death of the universe, starvation, extinction, and the worst is applying for grants. That's the darkest part. Because do you ever just get a stamp back that's like big stamp, like, boom, well, what's the point? Like, <laughs> <laughs> I was like, you've convinced me in your grant that the apocalypse is coming. Ergo, I will not fund it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I imagine there, there are some studies, some papers that could be written that you know, might present a really compelling case that uh, that the the end is imminent, and that would deter, no doubt. Yeah, uh, <laughs> the the garnering of, of further money. They're like, we're going to take this money. We're going to buy a yacht. We're going to throw a party because <laughs> it's all going. <laughs> What's the best thing about your job? What do you love the most about being an eschatologist? I think it's what I gestured out a moment ago 
um, I find it really meaningful. And this gets back even to the uh, to, to the the sort of um, to use the term a bit loosely, the kind of paradox of the field. How it's it's extremely important topic um, whose importance is, uh, as I said before, is just very parasitic on the importance of all other things, you know, poetry and sports and literature and, and so on. Um, it is, it is meaningful. I mean, it's, it, it, you know, this is work that aims to improve the lives of, uh, of the next generation and also to ensure that the, the, the great experiment called civilization continues and this multi-generational project of science and philosophy and so on can perhaps reach some kind of, you know, there'll be good ending to the, to the narrative of human existence. Um, so yeah, that, that's, I find that deeply satisfying. If you're a young person and <laughs> you're, you, uh, you happen to also care about human survival, then, uh, this is a good field to go into. It's I mean, a growth field also, as as colleagues say. It's say, not going away anywhere anytime soon. There's never been a better time to be a doomsday. Awesome. Thanks a lot. Appreciate it. <laughs> oh my. To find more of the brilliant and delightful Phil Torres' work, you can see the website riskandreligion.org. He is X. Riskology on Twitter. I'll link those both in the show notes. And his books are The End, What Science and Religion Tells Us About the Apocalypse, and last year's release, Morality, Foresight, and Human Flourishing, An Introduction to Existential Risks. So do get your mitts on those. Ologies is at Ologies on Twitter and Instagram. I'm Allie Ward with one L on both, so do follow along. Uh, Ologiesmerch.com has shirts that you can maybe used as a tourniquet during the chaos of an extraterrestrial alien invasion. Um, thank you, Bonnie Dutch and Shannon Peltis. And the Ologies podcast Facebook group is great. Wonderful people, new friends you can meet before we all die. Thank you, Aaron Talbert and Hannah Lippo for adminning. Nick Thorburn wrote and performed the theme music for this. He is in a band called Islands. And this was edited by lifesaver Stephen Ray Morris, who also hosts the podcast's the Purrcast, and see Jurassic Right. Now, if you stick around to the end, the end, the end, you know I tell you a secret every episode. So this week's secret is that right before I started recording these asides, I got a text from my dad on the family thread about how there were 39 earthquakes on the San Andreas Fault yesterday. That's great. It starts with an earthquake. So that's scary. But my, my first reaction to that was like, well, no one would expect you to return emails for a few days so that'd be pretty sweet and then also it's not as bad as an asteroid so maybe this apocalypse stuff is uplifting maybe we should laugh about it just a little more and live life in a way that's like eh, fuck it cut bangs sing some karaoke dance in a park just do your thing it's all gonna end okay bye-bye pachydermatology homeology cryptozoology litology Meteorology, Olfactology, Nephology, Seriology, Selenology. But this day's a surprise, no false premonitions. Take a look in the mirror and alter our actions. You were writing a song or having a fit. Not really knowing that this is it.
For 25 years, Mike's has been making lemonade the hard way. Mike's Hard Lemonade. Hard days deserve a hard lemonade. Mike's is hard. So is prison. Don't drive drunk. Premium all beverage with flavors. All registered trademarks used under license by Mike's Hard Lemonade Company, Chicago, Illinois. Spectrum One is a big deal. You get Spectrum Internet with the most reliable internet speeds, free advanced Wi-Fi for enhanced security and privacy, and a free Spectrum Mobile Unlimited line with nationwide 5G included, all while saving big. For the big speed, big reliability, and big savings you want, get Spectrum One. Just $49.99 a month for 12 months. Visit spectrum.com slash big deal for full details. Offer subject to change. Valid for qualified residential customers only. Service not available in all areas. Restrictions apply.